0: Good morning church. How are you all this morning? Doing well. Some of them are good. Some of you are great, but otherwise you are here and I'm thankful for you. If you don't know me, my name is Cody King. I'm the Edgewood campus pastor uh, and this week um, I'm excited to be here once again to share with you in Will's Point. I would like to say welcome to those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Edgewood this morning. I do miss you all uh, this morning. Today we come to the uh, end of our study of Romans. Uh, this is actually our forty-third week. Uh, we're going to be tackling um, the last chapter, uh, Romans chapter sixteen. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. But um, this last chapter, for me, it kind of—I f- I find encouragement here um, for for two reasons. One is is I find Paul, as he ends this letter, he ends it much like he ends most of his letters. Is it's a personal letter written to the church, but he, he identifies or he greets individuals within the body. And I find encouragement because it's, it's, it's almost a replenishment for my soul when I see Paul acknowledging the faithful that existed then, because it reminds me that the faithful exist even now. All right, I don't have to... Um, tell you because you already know but we're we're in a we're in a drought are we not yeah. amen right many of us are experiencing that we're in this drought and in the the heat gets turned up it's hot outside and we can almost feel a sense of despair as it's dry we're parched the land is parched but even in a se- in, even in a season of drought there's still days and moments of replenishing the lord is always faithful uh, in that I mean, just this past week, uh, many places throughout our area did experience a good replenishing rain. You know, as the ground soaks that, that water up, you may have stepped out into it just to feel the raindrops on you and be reminded of God's goodness uh, and the replenishment that we can receive from Him in seasons of drought. And as seasons of drought exist in a physical sense, they also exist within a spiritual sense. We can go through as believers times and seasons of drought where there can be times of difficulty, the heat can get turned up. We can find ourselves in moments of despair, potentially moments of doubt. But the Lord is faithful to replenish us, to give us a replenishing rain of His faithfulness to remind us that He is there, that He has us in hand even in the midst of difficult seasons. And that's where I find encouragement this morning from Romans chapter 16, as Paul wraps this up, as he addresses these individuals that we're going to read of here in a few moments, I find encouragement and replenishing in it. So in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul begins, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at, Sin- Sin- Cray- is at in Caincrea, Can- Can- Cray- ah. <laughs> forgive me, <clears throat> I don't speak Greek. I speak East Texan. So grace would be appreciated as we go through this list. But nonetheless, Phoebe, I commend her to you that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of mine as well. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila." Prisca could also be said Priscilla. You see this couple mentioned many times throughout the New Testament. But he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Aponetus, who was the first convert in, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, uh, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stacus. Greet Apellis, my who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephina Traf, and Traphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, uh, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Potrabus, and Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So why do I find encouragement here? It's just a list list of names. But many of us can be guilty from time to time as we approach God's Word and we find just a list of names in a language we don't speak and we can't really pronounce them and we just blah, 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 just trying to get through it so that we can say we read it. I'm guilty of that, I will confess. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but you've probably done it. (laughs) But nonetheless, there's truth here and there's things that we find They are meant to give us encouragement. It's not just a list of random names written down in God's Word as if it were random. It's purposeful, but for me, I find replenishing in a season of drought because it reminds me of who existed then, but the same people exist today. There's 28 individuals mentioned, 26 mentioned by name. There's two households plus countless others. There's nine women and 17 men. He begins with Phoebe. He says, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. He says, a servant in the Lord. The word he uses for servant is diakonos. In the Greek, there is no feminine form of that word. It's translated elsewhere as deacon. I find that interesting. As Paul says here, I commend to you Phoebe. Phoebe's most likely the one carrying the letter on Paul's behalf to the church at Rome. The word commend is to introduce someone, to to turn someone over to one's care. He says to greet her, to help her in anything that she needs. And he calls her a servant, a deaconess. But it's interesting to me that in the Greek there is no feminine form of this word, yet Paul applies it to a woman who is no less a servant than any man within the body. And church, I'm encouraged because there are many women within this body that are faithful servants in the Lord that I am thankful for. And Paul says, I commend her to you. She was a patron of many. Most likely, she was a woman of means. She was a woman of wealth. And out of that wealth, she served others and gave to others. Paul as well. But a couple other things that I take from this and I find encouragement is, there's, is there existed then and there exists today a great diversity within God's body. Here there were men, women, slaves, social elites. There were married, there were singles, widowed, Greeks, Romans, and Jews. They came from different backgrounds, traditions, different religions. But all met Paul through the course of ministry and his work in the proclaiming of the gospel. And the one thing that they shared in common above all else was that they were saved by grace through Jesus Christ. It didn't matter who they were where they came from, what they looked like. They were all diverse, they were all different, but they shared the one thing in common that brought them together and mattered above all else, was Jesus Christ. And then the second thing is that there was a willingness to share in the work of ministry. If you look at the descriptive words, how Paul describes these people, there were those that worked hard. Again, of those names, the ones that worked hard, Paul said, were all women. Four of them, he said, worked hard. Not to say that men didn't. But nonetheless, there were women that worked hard within the body. There were those that suffered imprisonment, those that opened their homes, Priscilla and Achilla, those that gave of their own resources, Phoebe, those that would nurture the needs of others, Rufus' mother, who nurtured even Paul, as she was a mother to him. But now these people lived 2,000 years ago, and they're named in God's Word, they find themselves to be in a list among faithful believers in God's Word, but their names are written on, a wrist, written, written on a list that doesn't exist here. And that list matters above this. But we find encouragement here, and I find encouragement, because they existed then, but they exist in the church today, but yet their names are different. There are many that exist here. There's Billy, Mike, Tim, and Denny, who respond and serve in in any way asked of them. Jeff and Alex continue not only to aim for excellence, but for but offer additional help and training team members as well as take on new training opportunities and find solutions to issues. Carmen and Laura don't wait to be asked for help. They offer it willingly. Cassie is amazing with our kiddos. Amber and Noel truly knock it out of the park. They're always prepared and have developed such a sweet relationship with our kids. Jennifer's love for the Lord permeates everything she does and impacts so many within the body. The women she leads, the kids that she teaches. She raises her hand and opens her doors to serve in any and every way, steadfast in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty. Alex and Cynthia, whether it's Thursday rehearsal, Sunday service, or Wednesday night at student ministry, they're sharing their gifts for God's kingdom and the building of God's kingdom. Brenda is a gentle and humble shepherd, and so many as she leads many of the women out of her own brokenness. Michael is faithful to serve whether he's asked or not, he serves in the Lord. He goes above and beyond in all things and when he's not asked to do so. Mark is the first one in. He's the last one out. He's a faithful servant. Wayne and Belinda faithfully and unselfishly host the body. And they earnestly intercede on behalf of the body. Sherry encourages and prays over with and for anyone who comes her way. There's Scott, Matt, Nathan, Brittany, Roma, Jamie, Amanda, Tiffany. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. Church, these are all individually but they're key parts of the whole. And they restore my soul in seasons of drought. Church, the seat that you're sitting in, you're not sitting in it alone. You're surrounded by faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who love you, want to serve alongside of you, and do ministry here for God's kingdom. It exists here. And I'm so thankful and encouraged by you. And thankful for you. In verse 16, Paul says to then greet one another with a holy kiss. He says, all the churches of Christ greet you. But this is the fourth time in Paul's letters that he says to greet one another with a holy kiss. There's 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Thess 5, 26. And 1 Peter 5, 14. He says, greet with the kiss of love. But church, there's no way around it. It's not a secret handshake, you know, that... That Paul is talking about here. (laughs) Paul is speaking of a holy kiss. He says to greet one another in such a way. Now, culturally, we're different now than what they were then. Culturally, they greeted one another with a kiss on the cheek. Us today, that looks different. A handshake, a high five, an elbow bump, a pound. You know, a slap and a grab and a snap. If you roll like that. But it differs according to where we're at, and culturally it differs. And as the years go on, those greetings will change over time. But the sentiment remains the same. As Paul says to greet these people, 18 times he says to greet these people within the body. But it's to welcome them, it's to show care for them, it is to accept one another, to embrace one another. For you and I, it could be a myriad of different things. But the point is that that there will be such a unity within the body that exists among the faithful that when we encounter one another, when we greet one another as we come and go, whatever it may be, that a handshake would be just as natural as a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the cheek just as natural to us as a handshake would or a high five would because of the unity and love that exists between the faithful. So as we exit this place, when I come off stage, if somebody wants to come and give me a kiss on the cheek, hey, I'll I'll, I'll take it. (laughs) But I tell you this, and I mean this in Christ, if you were to embrace me in such a way or greet me in such a way and give me a kiss on the cheek, you better mean it. May our love not be with hypocrisy. May it be genuine. How was Jesus betrayed? He was betrayed with a kiss, Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. In church, a high five can be just as holy. It's just where it comes from. There are many children within this body that I love to give high fives to. I give holy high fives to kids. Kids give me holy high fives. You may see me sometime. I'll go ahead and confess. I do like to play a little joke, so I, can, whoop, you know, kind of pull it out from under them. But before they walk away, they're getting a genuine high five. I promise. <laughs> But he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So Paul gives us an example of the faithful within the body. And we can find encouragement to know that the faithful remain and the faithful exist. But he also cautions us. We see this contrast that Paul gives us. As much as the faithful exist, there's also those that are not faithful. And they exist in the same place. Look at verse 17. Now he says, I appeal to you brothers this is the third time in this letter paul has used this phrase i appeal to you brothers i urge you i beseech you is what he's saying he's drawing them in for the third time the first time was i urge you to present your body as a living sacrifice the second time was i urge you i appeal to you to pray for me on my behalf this time he says i appeal to you brothers to watch out Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul says avoid them. As much as there's faithfulness that exists, there are those that exist within the body that would seek to do the body harm. And Paul says to watch out. The word is scapeo. It means to look at, to observe, or contemplate. It's where we would get telescope or microscope. The idea is that we would scope out what's around us in such a way and investigate in such a way so that we can see what's really there. But what he's not getting at, he's not talking about we all need to be paranoid that there's somebody by us that wants to harm us. That's not the idea. But we should all be watching out. We should be scoping out for those within the body that would two things. One, those that would cause divisions. Or dissensions or disunity within the body. And the second is those that would create obstacles or hindrances. The word is scandalon, Or those that would create scandals. We've seen this word before in chapter 14. It literally means a trap. Paul says to watch out for those that would set traps within the body. Or lay stumbling blocks before others. So he says to watch out, so the question that comes to mind for me is, all right, we need to watch out, but if we're to watch out, how do we spot these things? Well, practically, how do we spot these things? Well, when it comes to anything that creates division within the body, if you see something creating division within the body, watch out for that thing. I should be a smart aleck, but I mean, there's there's not a whole lot more I can pull out of that. Other than if you see, if you hear, if someone engages you within the body and they're talking to you and they're telling you something that you know and you sense that is disunifying. If you sense division could be created off of this thing, Paul says to watch out. Be aware of that, that that is happening. So we need to be mindful of what we're giving ear to. Most often, whenever people speak about things, but if you find someone in dark corners or shadows within the body and they're whispering lies and creating division and disunity, avoid that. Watch out for that and you avoid that is what Paul is saying. And then when it comes to things that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, that's God's word, what Paul at least is talking about. It's what we have today. So, if you have someone, the way you spot that is if you encounter someone that is teaching something that is contrary to God's word, watch out for that person. Watch out for what they say. But what is implied there? If we are to watch out for those that would teach things that are contrary to God's word, what must we know in order to watch out for that thing? We must know God's word. If we don't know God's Word, how are we to watch out for that one that would teach something contrary to it? Otherwise, we're liable to buy that thing. And we're going to find out how we fall into that here in just a minute. But the way we spot it is we must know God's Word. That is something we will always come back to in this body as we teach, is the absolute necessity in the life of the believer to be in God's Word and to know God's Word. Because if you don't know it, how do you spot the fake How do you watch out for that thing? Paul, the imperative is to watch out. How do you watch out for what you don't know? You must know. We've got to be in it. So not only are we to watch out, now he says we must also avoid them. The word avoid, it means to turn oneself away. It's to deviate from. But it also carries the meaning of to shun. Now when it comes to God's church, that word right there can also, to shun? Are we supposed to shun people? In this particular context, absolutely. If there's anyone within the body that we are to shun, it is those that would create disunity and those that would lay obstacles and lay traps before God's people. We are to avoid such a person. Watch out for them and avoid them. Now the next question that I come to as I look at this and study through this is why? Is One, how do we spot? But why? Not not so much why is that person present, but why, if that person or people is present within the body, why do they do the things that they do? Why do they seek to stir division? Why do they teach things contrary to God's Word? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 18. He tells us, For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And this can go back to how do we spot them? If we spot someone that's serving themselves, if they're constantly about themselves... They're serving them. They're not serving the Lord. It's to their own end that they would have it. So, whenever they create disunity, it's to serve themselves in some way. When they're teaching something contrary to God's word, why would they do that? For a myriad of reasons, but it always is self serving. Now, how do they do it? It's by smooth talk and flattery. And who do they do it to? They deceive the hearts of the naive. The word for naive is akakas, a.k.a. Kos, In the Greek, the word kakos means bad. Whenever you have a or the letter a, that means not. When you have that a in front of a word, it means not that thing. In this case, a kakos means not bad. So who's being deceived? The hearts of those that are harmless. The hearts of those that would do no wrong. The hearts of those that would trust anyone. They have no reason to distrust. They are the naïve. Those that would do the body harm, they do it because they victimize those that are the weakest in faith within the body. They prey on those that don't know how to defend themselves. They prey on those that would give ear to it innocently. That's what makes, that's what makes this command, this imperative, so serious for you and I within the body and how serious God takes it is that there exist those within the body that would do it harm, and they do it harm by praying those that are the weakest in it. Jesus tells us elsewhere, he says in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he says, beware of false prophets, prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He tells us to watch out for them. They exist, they're within the body, with their ravenous wolves. And he tells us how to spot them. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. And he gives an example. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, thorns come from thorn bushes, not grapes. Grapes come from vines. If we're aware of that truth, when we see a grape that's amongst the thorns, something's not right. But if we start spotting thorns amongst the vines, something's not right. We need to watch out for that thing. But then he goes on. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear good or a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. He says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you catch what he just said? And it is highly important, church. And there's too much of the church that doesn't teach it. And it can stir me. God's word is clear that there exists within the body the faithful but also what exists within the body are ravenous wolves that would seek to do the body harm and devour the weak in it. Watch National Geographic and a pride of lions that are trying to feed. They don't go for the leader of the herd. They go for the weakest in the herd. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit but note what he says in verse 19. He says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. The tree that does not bear good fruit is the diseased tree. So in order for the disease to not spread through the venue, that tree vineyard, that tree is cut down and it is cast out and it's burned. What does that imply for God's church? It means that those people exist within the body. Those people should be identified and they should be removed from the body. The idea is not excommunication. The idea is not to hurt them or to hate them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the implication that Paul is getting at, and we will see, it's not those that are in Christ Jesus. It's those that make a profession of faith, but they're ravenous wolves. They're in sheep's clothing. They're not of the church, though they exist within it. Now I want to note also who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He's not writing to pastors, he's not writing to leaders, he's not writing to a Timothy or a Titus. He's writing to the church and he tells the church to watch out and to avoid. He doesn't tell the church to engage. The role of engaging those that would do this harm is the role of the leaders. Paul makes that clear to Timothy, he makes that clear to the elders, he makes that clear to Titus. That the role of the leader is the one. The shepherd is the one that's to protect the flock. The flock is to watch out and to avoid. So if you're a leader within the body, if you're a journey group leader, you're a leader. You have a call from the Lord to lead those among you. And you are to engage in that that would harm your group of people. If you're leading in student ministry within the body... You have a call to engage with those that would seek to do student ministry hard. Kids kids ministry the same way. And it goes up. And then when it comes to the church and we have the eldership, they are the ones that are to engage those that would do the flock harm. The responsibility for the body, we are all though to watch out and to avoid. And you will know them by their fruits. So yes, according to to Romans 15.1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Yes, we are all meant to watch out and we are all meant to avoid. Now I would like to help us with a little illustration to help us see that the enemy hasn't changed his tactics. The enemy remains the same in the way he pursues and the way he attempts to twist lies and divide God's people. And we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Don't turn there. But let's just look at some comparisons to what happened there and what Paul tells us. So we have Adam and Eve. They were taught the truth, right? God gave them a command. You can eat everything in here, but you don't eat of that. And they were taught the truth about him. The church here is reminded that the teaching they have is one that they should learn. Adam and Eve should, be, should have kept away or avoided the one that would tempt them. The church is warned to watch out and keep away from those that would lead them astray. The one who deceived Adam and Eve was not serving God, but he was serving himself. The church is warned that their tempters are not serving Christ, but their own appetites. Adam and Eve were deceived through smooth talk. The church is warned to watch out for those that would deceive by smooth talk and flattery. But just as God in Genesis 3.15 promised that the serpent would be crushed, look at what Paul says in verse 20. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul tells the church to watch out and avoid, but he also tells the church that God, may the God of peace, that he will soon crush whose? Satan's head under your feet. Our role as the body is to be faithful to the Lord To grow in our understanding of who he is, his word. And as we do that, we will begin to, we will be able to spot the things that are wrong within the body that would do the body harm. And we watch out for that, we avoid that, and we trust the Lord that one day the battle is won, the enemy is defeated, and his head is crushed under our feet, the church's feet. Amen. That is an encouragement to us. And he says, verse 19, now he. Returned, he says, for obedience is, for your obedience is known to all. So again, he's writing to the church at Rome. So what can we take from that? That the Rome, Roman church was knocking out of the park. He says, your obedience was known to all so that I rejoice over you. What an encouragement from Paul. He's never been to Rome, but he's heard about their obedience and he rejoices over them who he hasn't even been with them, though he knows many that are there as he has written to them. But then he says this, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So you have two things here that he says to do be wise to what is good, innocent to evil. So it's one thing to know what is good, as he says, be wise to it. But as we have that wisdom, the next step is to behave accordingly. How foolish would it be if we have this word from the Lord, this wisdom of what is good and what is why, right and what is true, but we decide to do what's contrary to that? How foolish. But he says, be wise to what is good. So our choices should reflect the wisdom that we have in that. To do the reverse is not marked by faithfulness or obedience, but it's to be marked by impurity and disobedience. Look at what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 1. Speaking of the character of those that fail to obey the truth. Though they've heard it, they fail to obey it. it. Titus 1 verse 15 and 16, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. He says, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Do you catch what he said? Although they profess to know God, where do they exist? Where do people that profess to know God exist? They exist right here. Again, the idea is not so we would look around in paranoia of that, but they would profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Their fruit gives them away. Our fruit will give us away. If I were to stand up here and say I'm an apple tree and you start seeing oranges, there's a problem. But we need to know the difference between an apple and an orange or else we are deceived. So be wise to what is good. Then he says, be innocent to what is evil. The word for innocent is achios. It means unmixed. We should be unmixed with evil. In no sense, we should, we should not be impure. We should be pure in every way, unmixed with it. But Swindall notes this from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He notes that, This word can also describe city walls that had survived a siege. He says intact and unscathed could be synonyms of this word. So the idea is that evil, the enemy will certainly attack and its assault will be intense. However, the walls of the congregation's integrity must hold. We can all experience seasons of drought and in that drought as the heat increases and life gets difficult and the enemy presses in against us. Paul says to be innocent of that evil. May our walls come away unscathed and intact and unmixed with evil. So whose walls are coming down? It's not the churches. Look at what, what Jesus says to Peter. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what he said? Who's on the defense in that statement? It's not the church. What Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The walls that come down are the gates of hell. The church remains up. But sadly, there are many local churches where their walls have fallen. The four walls of their physical building are still erect, and there's still people in seats, but their walls have come down. And they're a detriment to the gospel. And sadly, in our day and age, you can go to YouTube, and if you are not wise to what is good, you will fall for the lies. You can watch a video and you can see someone up there telling you, if you've never prayed to the Spirit, you're missing out. But if you don't know God's Word, that is completely contrary to something that God's Word would teach. Jesus says, if you don't know how to pray, this is how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Not to say the Spirit doesn't have a role within our life, but to say if you're not praying to the Spirit, you're missing out on what? God's Word doesn't tell you what you're missing out on. But God's word makes clear. You pray to the Father. The Spirit intercedes for you. Jesus intercedes on your behalf. You pray to the Father. But let's not twist that up in some catchy way to where all of a sudden we're putting emphasis on something that doesn't need the emphasis in that way, namely the Holy Spirit. He is our guide. He is the one that teaches us this if we get into this so that we realize what is contrary to his word. But may we be innocent to what is evil. And every local expression of Christ's body must decide how it will respond when evil comes knocking on those walls. The church walls will not come down. The walls of the church, its foundations will never be shaken. But a local expression of that, if disunity is allowed within the body, If it's allowed for people to teach things that are contrary to God's word within the body, it will be divided and it will be a fall and it will be ineffective in the work of ministry and the building up of God's kingdom. I don't believe that's here. Praise the Lord. But if we are not vigilant, if the faithful here is not increasing, we can fall prey to such a thing. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Church, you and I must grow up. We have to continually be growing. And if we're not doing that, we need to seek the Lord on why we're okay to remain where we're at. We need to be growing, grow into maturity. So now the faithful exist here, but ravenous wolves exist as well. Both exist in the same place. But if the faithful are increasing, if the faithful within the body are growing, if they are spreading, they will choke out the wolves. Mind you, we're in a drought. You can drive down the road and you can look at yards and you see grass that's just burnt up. Anything green is a weed <laughs> or somebody's feeding their lawn. I live with my in-laws right now, and I was talking to my father-in-law the other morning. We're outside, and we're just talking, and last year, they planted some planted St. Uh, Augustine. Absolutely love St. Augustine. I planted some at my old house before I moved. I would love to see if it's still going, if they're watering it. But as we're talking, I look down, and I just see the St. Augustine. These runners are going out, I mean, yards out. 10 or 15 yards, runners going. And off those runners, it's spreading out further as we're standing there talking and you see water going and it's just watering it. St. Augustine is one of those grasses. If you feed it, it's going to spread. If you feed it, it loves the heat. It thrives in the trial. As the sun beats down upon it, for us, we would find despair. We would be parched. We need replenishment. But as long as you feed that grass, it will spread. And as it spreads, it chokes out every weed that is in that yard. But if you cease to feed it, it will burn up like everything else. And the weeds will take over. That is the idea. That's my prayer for us as a body. If you continue to come here, I promise you, you're going to be fed. You will be fed at least 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. You will be fed but I'll tell you this, it's not enough. If you think for a second you coming here for an hour on a Sunday morning is feeding your soul in the manner that the Lord desires for you, you are sadly mistaken. You are being deceived. I'm sorry for my intensity on that, but I couldn't stress that enough. If you're coming and you're listening to me throw up God's word on you and it's enough for you, it's not. You're liable to fall prey. You'll believe the lies that surround you, and there are lies everywhere. The enemy is alive and well, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to chew us up, spit us out, render us ineffective for ministry. He wants you here for an hour of the week, and that's it. And if he can convince you that's all there is, and you're doing good by it, you've fallen prey to it. Church, my desire is to feed. I know Brandon's is as well and our elders. We desire to teach God's word and we are going to faithfully teach. I believe God has gifted me to do that and I enjoy it immensely. And I will faithfully do that as long as he allows me to do it. But church, it is not enough 30 minutes at a time for you. This is an important time. But it is not enough. You have, if you're a believer, you have his spirit, you have the guide, you have the counselor living within you. You have His Word. You have what is needed to grow in maturity so that you would not be swayed and fall into the traps that the enemy would set. You have everything that you need. His Spirit, His Word, and you have His people. So Paul now sends greetings. He says, greet these people here in verse 21. Now there's those that actually send greetings. He says, Timothy my fellow worker greets you, so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. It says, I, Tertius, wrote this, who wrote this letter, uh, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius is Paul's amanuensis or his copyist. He's the guy that as Paul is, is speaking this, he's writing all of these things down. But he acknowledges that he's the one doing that. And he says, I, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord, then Gaius who is host to me and host to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, as we look back over 43 weeks of our study of Romans, and I encourage you to look back. I encourage you to go back and study all of these teachings, all of these messages are online. I would love to hear that someone went home and binged out this study versus something on Netflix. That would be fantastic. That would encourage my heart. But I encourage you to go look back. But as we we do that, as we take hold of the gospel and the truth that we learn here, we will do a few things. A few things will begin to come out of us if we take hold of that gospel and that truth and apply it to our life. One, we will begin to accept one another. We'll accept one another just as we are. As people come, we will accept, accept them however they come, whoever they are, wherever they come from. Just as Christ did for us. And as we are accepting of one another, we will begin to serve one another. We'll begin to meet one another in the need. We'll begin to identify that need and seek to help in that need in any way that we can. We will serve. We will greet one another with a holy kiss as people come in. Smooching all around. (laughs) Loving one another and accepting one another and serving one another well. And as we serve one another, we will honor and esteem one another. We will give preference. We will give deference to one another. We will show the value and the worth that every individual has. Because every individual has value and has worth. Above all else, you were created in the image of God. And that gives you value and that gives you worth. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. On that alone... We are to show honor to one another, and as we do these things, they will be a demonstration of our love for one another. And that is the thing, church, that the world will see and know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. We will accept one another, we'll serve one another, we'll honor and esteem one another. How wonderful of a thing, amen? Amen. To do that for one another, people that do that. No one desires to not do that. Or not be a part of that. If you don't desire to be a part of that, well, you're kind of at odds with how the Lord might lead His people. But a church that does these things will be a church that grows. And a church that grows not in number, but more importantly, vastly more importantly, it will be a church that grows in maturity. It will be near to attaining, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.13, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? We would grow up and look more like Jesus. That's our standard. That's the bar. And church, it is a lofty bar. What are you and I called to as believers? We are called to holiness. God's word says, be perfect as I am perfect. Is that anything you or I can accomplish on our own? Absolutely not. And if we think otherwise, again, we will fall into a trap. We will render ourselves ineffective believing that lie, that we are to make ourselves perfect. No, we are made perfect. We do not arrive at the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. until no, Christ receives us. He will make perfect. He will bring to completion the thing that he started in you, but that will be when he comes and he receives you and I. Until then, it is progress, church. That is, that is the path that we should be on. It's a matter of sanctification, allowing the Lord to change us from the inside out. In a church that does these things faithfully and with understanding, they will be a church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And that is my desire. I'm not perfect. I fall short. My life isn't always marked by such a thing. But I can promise you there is a desire within me to be marked by these things. And the question that I have for you in your heart, if you are here today and you claim Christ and that you are a believer, you put your faith and your trust in Him, say, you're savior of my life, is He Lord of your life? But do you have a desire within you to be marked by such things? And as you search your own heart, if your answer is, eh, I commend you to the Lord, Seriously to seek his face and to seek an understanding and to ask him to reveal to your heart why you don't desire the things that he says he desires for you to have. I don't mean to have you question your salvation, but if God's spirit is present within you, his desire is that you would be marked in such a way. And if your desire is not that, something is greatly misaligned. And I pray that you seek him on that. If not, you very well may find yourself being the one that Paul just said, watch out for. And I pray that's alarming to your soul. But as the faithful increases, the wolves will be choked out. And I pray that we understand, we let that settle. But the faithful do exist. As I said, there are many names, and there are many more than what I said, and they exist, and they serve diligently, faithfully. They love the Lord. They love one another. They love you. Look for such people to come alongside, and we will do well as a body. But if you're here this morning, and you're apart from Christ, you don't know Christ, but yet you hear this and And it sounds good. It just sounds good. Hey, that sounds great. You make it sound good. I want to be a part of that. If I were to ask you, do you have a desire? If you're here and you do not know the Lord, if you have a desire to be marked in such a way, I would ask you to respond. When this service ends, I will be around. There will be someone at the back of this room that would love to meet with you, if you have questions around what that looks like, to be marked in such a way, someone would love to walk that with you. But there are some things things that you need to know. If you desire to be marked in such a way, you need to recognize the thing that hinders that in you, and that is called sin. That sin that exists within you separates you from a holy God. The penalty of that sin is death, but God's goodness and his love is that he sent his son to die that death for you on your behalf so that you might have life. But it takes understanding that sin, the cost of that sin, understanding that Jesus paid it for you and putting your faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior of your life. And that's what it looks like to begin the process of being marked in such a way. And for the believer in the room, many of us probably need to be reminded of that truth. I never grow out of a need for a reminder of that truth. Let's close this morning, as Paul does, with praise. Paul closes with what's called a doxology. Doxology is a a seminary word in a way for a manner of praise. The last few verses of Paul's letter to the Romans is praise to the Lord. and all of the teaching and everything that Paul lays out for us, he turns our gaze and our eyes upward to the one that holds it all together and makes it all possible. So as we read these last few verses, understand this is a matter of worship. When you read God's word, you find yourself praising the Lord. In verse 25, Paul says, Now to him Lord, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for our study of one book of your Bible. There are 65 more. And I pray, Lord, that we find within us a desire, Lord, a hunger for your word, to grow in a knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to live a life fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, Lord, And Lord, your word promises if we seek you, we will find you if we seek you with all our heart, Lord. And I desire that for my own heart, Lord. I pray that for anyone in here who has the same desire. And if they struggle with a hesitation or they struggle with some doubt, Lord, I pray that they don't let a moment pass. I pray by your spirit, you keep them in their seat until they're right with you. As your church praises your name, and gives you glory in these next few moments, Lord. I pray that you hear a joyful noise from your church this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. (laughs)